Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. The relationship between CELAC and the European Union is stronger today than it was yesterday or the day before yesterday as a consequence of this agreement. It's a wide-ranging agreement of 41 paragraphs touching and concerning all the major contemporary issues which concern us, both regions. That's Ralph Gonzalez, Prime Minister of the tiny Caribbean country of St. Vincent and the Grenadines, speaking at the close of the EU Latin America Summit this week in Brussels. His country holds the presidency of CELAC, That's the community of Latin American and Caribbean states. He was in Brussels this week, along with dozens of other leaders, for the EU Latin America Summit. On this week's podcast, we will examine what the summit has achieved and assess the relationship between the EU and Latin America, a relationship that has complex roots in colonialism and trade, but has become even more important to both sides as global geopolitics has shifted. Also, we'll hear the latest on a mushrooming scandal which engulfed the European Commission this week over the decision to appoint an American economist to a top EU job. I'm Suzanne Lynch, host of EU Confidential. First, we're turning to an issue that has captivated people in Brussels this week, and this is the proposed appointment of a top US economist, Fiona Scott Morton, to a senior position role within the European Commission. I caught up with our editor-at-large, Nick Vinokur. Fill us in on what's been happening and where we stand on this. Yeah, this was sort of crept up on this. The first reports of Fiona Scott Morton being appointed the chief economist to the Competition Authority service about a month ago. People seemed to not notice. But when her name got out there, it really set off a firestorm. It had some incredibly strong reactions from France. Uh, There was a night when you had three French ministers all reacting on the record and saying that this was a bad idea. The president himself weighed in. And this week we saw five commissioners speaking out against the appointment, uh, which was just an escalation. And on Wednesday, Margaret Vestager, vice president of the commission, announced that Fiona Scott Morton had withdrawn her candidacy for this role. So what has been the complaint of the French? What is their issue with this proposed appointment? 
It's a lot of things. Some of it has to do with perceived conflicts of interest. Fiona Scott Morton disclosed that she had done pretty extensive work with a couple of big tech companies that would be in scope of some of the uh, big EU tech regulations. I would say the main one really focuses on her passport, on her nationality. Uh, Fiona Scott Morton is a U.S. national. She doesn't have dual citizenship. And that is a first. Uh, that is pretty unprecedented to be appointed at that level of the commission. And basically the argument is this is someone who's going to be in a strategic role. We are leading this big charge against big tech companies, many of them American. Uh, she's going to have access to very sensitive information and in competition cases. And it just doesn't make sense that a U.S. national is in this role. And by the way, uh, if the tables were turned, the FTC in the U.S. does not accept foreign nationals. So why should we do the same thing? Why should we mm. accept uh, an American in this job? And that's one of the points that President Macron made at the EU summit this week. A really extraordinary intervention, though, that it got to this stage, this uh, level in the French government. I mean, some people in Brussels are saying, you know, how did France miss this? That there were reports, we ourselves in Politico reported that she was being tipped for the job as far back in April. And it seems they were caught off guard slightly on this. But, you know, as you're explaining there, I suppose France did get its way. It's, it's an indication of the power of France uh, within the EU. Ultimately, Fiona Scott Morton now has withdrawn her uh, candidacy. The other person here at the centre of this is Margaret Vestager. She is one of the best-known commissioners, but she has already thrown her hat into the ring for another job. That's head of the European Investment Bank. So she could be out the door in a few months. This is not reflecting particularly well on her either. Um, I'm hearing people today talking about her political judgment that maybe, you know, she should have called France, that she knew this was going to be a controversial appointment. I mean, how do you think uh, this reflects on her? Right. Um, poorly in a word, um, she, this is not what you want in the last few months of your very storied career in the European commission. And she had to undergo this grilling in the European parliament, which was not great and ultimately had to back down on the appointment. So whether Scott Morton withdrew her candidacy, whether she was asked to withdraw it, the effect politically is the same. And as you pointed out, Margaret Vestager does have a future in mind in politics for herself. She's clearly signaled her interest in becoming the next head of the European Investment Bank, which is a big financial kind of frontline position. And of course, she will need the support of France to have that job. And I would say that this episode certainly cast some doubt over that candidacy and, and Vestager's legacy and possibly her future as well. Yeah, interesting to watch that in September. The finance ministers will be due to discuss this. As you say, France is a huge player here. It can be done by qualified majority, but you know they're really aiming for consensus on this. So, so let's see how that plays out. Nick Vinokur, thanks so much for joining us for that analysis. Thanks so much for having me. Now to the EU CELAC Summit. Along with hundreds of reporters, I was down at the European Council building earlier this week for this meeting. And I caught up with our reporters, Hans van der Burchard and Barbara Moons, for a catch-up on how it all went. Barbara, it's been an interesting couple of days here. A huge number of leaders from Latin America have come here to Brussels. I mean, how significant has this summit been? 
Well, I think that it's definitely interesting and important that this summit has happened. It was the first one in eight years, right? And it was really casted from both sides, and especially from the EU side of like, you know, we're finally strengthening the ties again between the two regions, especially in this geopolitical context. But then obviously the, sh the summit got a little bit overshadowed by the disagreements over the language on Ukraine. Mm. So like all summits, uh, two sides or all the participants try to work together to come out with a communique. And we, you were covering this during the week and there was a lot of disagreement on this, Hans. I mean, on Monday night, things were not looking good. There seemed to be huge, uh, a huge gulf between the EU side and the CELAC side. Yeah, and especially there were uh, two or three countries, mainly Nicaragua and Cuba, which were blocking the intended language uh, condemning Russia's war of aggression against Ukraine. So uh, these two countries uh, were opposing it, and this was very much also Nicaragua that took a strong stance there. And what we heard is even that Russia kind of like remotely hijacked the summit by telling those countries, um, and especially Nicaragua, which is of course closely aligned to Russia, by telling them uh, not to support any of this language that would condemn this war of aggression against Ukraine. So it's important to know that these uh, summit declarations always work in a way that all sides, all countries have to sign up to it. So it's a unanimous declaration. So the intention was by Russia probably to tell these countries to block this and then there would be no statement. But in the end, we got a statement. There is an exception for Nicaragua, which did not sign up to this critical language on the war of aggression against Ukraine. But the EU and the other CELA countries in a way succeeded to get a joint text that uh, condemns this war. I'm just looking at the, the joint communique that was issued after the statement and it talks about that uh, we express deep concern on the ongoing war against Ukraine and officials here are telling us even that word against Ukraine, war against Ukraine rather than war in Ukraine, that had been up for debate. So in many ways people can around the EU quarter here are hailing a success that they, they got agreement on this text. I mean it's been a huge issue for Europe and America, the fact that not every country in the world shares their view on uh, the Russian war, Russian war in Ukraine. Uh, so that ended up being a, a big issue at this summit. Yeah, and if I may just jump in there to quote German Chancellor Olaf Scholz, who I think was right to say that this is uh, a change in a way and a success because some of these countries from South America who not long ago had been reluctant to call out Russia to really call this war of aggression uh, by its name are now doing so by subscribing to this declaration. It could, of course, be more direct, even tougher on Russia, but they found some sort of middle ground where these countries now support this critical language. And uh, Olaf Scholz said, my impression is that there is a shift worldwide and Russia is showing more and more to everybody that it really has an imperial interest. And it's not in, it's defending itself against anything, but that it has simply invaded its neighbor. And so it seems that more and more countries are indeed realizing this. You did also see a lot of annoyance in, among, you know, some of the select leaders that Ukraine was so much the focus of the summit and then also on, of these negotiations on the final summit statement. There was a clear indication from several of the leaders there saying that, you know, this summit shouldn't have been on Ukraine. It should have been on the relations between the EU and the Latin American and Caribbean region, even at the press conference. Leaders saying that on the record. And so... It's definitely, you know, it was a diplomatic success or they avoided a diplomatic failure by not having the Ukraine language in the summit or by not having a, a summit statement at all. But at the same time, this led to more annoyances and grievances on, on the select side. So it's kind of the question, you know, what 
which option did you prefer as, as an outcome of this of the summit, right? Yes, very politically difficult. I mean, the other aspect of this relationship is, of course, economic. Now, Barbara, as a senior trade reporter, you've been covering this for a long time. I mean, talks between the EU and South America have been going on for years. People may be familiar with the Mercosur deal. That's a trade pact between the EU and four Uh, Latin American countries. Now, that was a kind of a a parallel discussion, if you like, here. I mean, a lot of officials were telling us, oh, it's not really about Mercosur, Mm -hmm. but really, you know, it it kind of was also. Um, Fill us in on whether there was any progress on this Mercosur deal, why it's controversial and, and where things stand now. Yeah, so initially the EU really wanted the Mercosur deal as a deliverable for this summit, right? Even though it's just four countries of the region, it would have been a great success to announce here that, you know, things are moving forward, that they're strengthening ties, not just politically, but also economically. So they failed to do that um, because they're still negotiating a so-called addendum over sustainability standards, so mostly on deforestation in the Amazon, which is sensitive to Brazil, of course. So as you said, there have been a lot of side meetings here um, between, for example, European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen and Brazilian President Lula, also between the EU trade chief and his his counterparts on the Mercosur countries. There is this promise um, to now get it done by the end of the year, which a lot of EU officials and also diplomats from the other side are saying that that is definitely politically possible. But then, of course, we're also approaching the European elections. And as you know, the Mercosur negotiations or the Mercosur trade deal is sensitive to a lot of countries in the EU. So that would make it harder again on the EU side, potentially, to get this deal through before the European elections. And here is Ursula von der Leyen, the European Commission president, speaking at the end of the press conference here about uh, what she expects to happen with the Mercosur deal. I am very confident, especially after these two days, that in the coming months we will be able to wrap up the negotiations with Mercosur. Our ambition is to settle any remaining differences as soon as possible and to conclude by the latest by the end of this year. Hans, on that issue, we've seen a lot of, in a way this summit is the culmination of a lot of diplomacy that has been happening during the year. We saw Ursula von der Leyen visit South America. We saw Olaf Scholz, for example. I mean, what does it feel in Germany about uh, the possibility of trade and Latin America? I mean, one of the themes we've been picking up here, for example, is that it's been eight years since it's been a summit. And in the meantime, China has been... uh, increasing its investment there, buying up mines, you know, really seeing Latin America as an investment possibility. What's your your feeling about where the EU is at the moment in terms of the potential for Latin America as a kind of a, a trade partner? Yeah, you, exactly. You mentioned a very good and important point there, which is the mining, because uh, China is very active in Latin America, but it is taking out a lot of raw materials from Latin American countries, from their soil, then bringing them to China, processing them there, and then partly reselling them to those countries as uh, processed materials or as products. And uh, the deal that the EU is now proposing to these countries is saying, we offer you a better, a fairer trade relation, where you also get more out of it than just having uh, some raw materials taken off your ground, uh, but where you also get to have some of the supply chains or some of the processing in your own country. So there's uh, more workforce uh, that is created there, more jobs that are being created there. And uh, then there's the bigger Mercosur deal that uh, Barbara just mentioned. And uh, she said it's four countries, but it's not just 
any four countries is Brazil, Argentina, Uruguay and Paraguay and especially Argentina and uh, Brazil uh, make up the huge part of Latin America. This is a market that has no real trade deal with anyone in the world so far. A few investment deals, but no real trade deal that slashes tariffs, makes trade much easier, that cuts a lot of the red tape and makes just trade relations much easier. So it would be a huge step forward, a big advantage, also first mover advantage for the EU if it managed to uh, seal this trade deal um, with Latin America, with the Mercosur bloc, and get a foot basically in the door there before China does. And of course, there we come to the German perspective. In Germany, this is seen now as a key target because Germany and other countries want to diversify from China. And when you want to reduce the dependence from China, you need new markets. And Latin America is seen there as a very important market. And even the Green Party, which is one of the three parties in Olaf Scholz's uh, government, which used to be very critical towards this trade deal, is now saying we want it because also uh, against the backdrop of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, they see the need to find new allies in the world and strike new deals. And this could be a big deliverable. And maybe just to add on that, kind of looming in the background, you also have the discussion on neocolonialism and on dealing with colonial past, that was also a big issue at this summit. On uh, Leaders on both sides have expressed you know, how they should handle this. And it is also very much hanging over the discussions on trade, but also specifically on raw materials, right? The fact that Western countries would take away these resources from these developing countries is obviously a very sensitive issue to a lot of parties here and in the region. And uh, we were speaking to Frederick Pearson earlier, President of Business Europe. He was very welcoming of uh, this summit for European businesses. He outlined uh, the advantages and, and the need for Europe to be involved in terms of investment in this part of the world. Uh, but I also asked him about this kind of these ethics around this kind of investment, uh, about things like lithium, about the idea that Europe is taking these raw materials, these very valuable resources uh, from South America. And this is what he had to say. The majority of, of European businesses are already active in this, this region and consider it its home market. And not least when you come to our, our members in, in Spain and, and Portugal, this is considered a home market. And I fully understand the aspirations. Say that you are Chile and you just don't want to be an exporter of lithium. You will also have the ambitions to produce batteries and maybe at the end of the day to produce the actual EV vehicles themselves. I think that is highly expected. And myself coming from Sweden, that's the way the industrialization started in Sweden. We started off with the iron ore in north of Sweden. Then we started making steels and then we started making cars and, and machinery. So I think from a business standpoint, this is about a partnership, not about sort of a single EU initiative. This is a two way street. Now, Pearson also talks about uh, the importance for Europe of taking Latin America seriously. He also points out that Europe has fallen behind in some ways when it comes to investing in this region. We've fallen behind from having been the number one importer to now being the number three importer. Exports by uh, sort of a stellar example, which is, of course, equipment and, and machinery. That's basically been halved in the last 20 years. So we've, we've fallen uh, behind, for sure. Final thoughts on this, Barbara. I mean, how would you assess the outcome of this summit? 
Yeah, I think the main outcome of the summit is that they'll keep talking. And, you know, we as journalists sometimes kind of make fun of that as, as deliverable for the summit. But it is obviously key for diplomacy. As, for example, Dutch Prime Minister Mark Rutte said that if a region such as Latin America calls, that the West or the EU picks up the phone. Because if they fail to do that, then at the moment we need them, as we needed them on Ukraine, you know, they don't pick up the phone either. So the fact that now these are all these EU leaders kind of express the mea culpa try to listen to their counterparts from the region, uh, I think is definitely a, a political win and a concrete outcome of this summit. Barbara Hand, thanks so much for joining us. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Coming up is a fascinating discussion with Irish academic Desmond Dynan on the power dynamics of the European Commission under Ursula von der Leyen. Stay with us. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I'm Anne McElvoy host of Politico's new Power Play podcast, launching in the fall. But as a little taste of what's to come, this week I sat down with Sir Richard Moore, chief of the UK's secret intelligence service MI6, otherwise known as C. In an exclusive interview, he discusses the state of the war in Ukraine and the future of intelligence gathering and considers technological advancements in artificial intelligence. Now is a time where we are seeing Russians who are totally appalled by what they're seeing done in their name in Ukraine. And therefore, it's a moment where people are looking to come and help us. So do be sure to follow or subscribe to Powerplay on your favourite podcast app to listen to the full interview. We'll also put a link in EU Confidential show notes. And we do look forward to bringing you more Powerplay episodes as of September. See you then. Professor Desmond Dynan is Jean Monnet Chair in European Public Policy at George Mason University. A longtime analyst of EU affairs, he has penned several books on the EU, which have been studied by generations of students and researchers alike. So, Professor Dynan, thanks for joining us here in the studio in our political headquarters in Brussels. I'd like to start off our conversation by thinking in particular about the European Commission as an entity and, and this particular commission under Ursula von der Leyen. 
How would you assess uh, the European Commission over the last four or so years? Well, first of all, taking a slightly longer perspective, if I could, I think the Commission has been in something of a secular decline. Now, that's a provocative way of putting it because the Commission is strong, the Commission is central and will always be central to the European Union. But I would say that the heroic days of the Commission are over because the Commission has achieved the big objectives and the big goals of European integration. Those goals need constant watching and tending and continuous implementation. But I'm talking really about economic goals because that's what is at the core of the European Union. The European Union is a political project, but the objectives of European integration are primarily economic. And that's what most ordinary Europeans associate the European Union with. Mm. Now, as far as von der Leyen is concerned, I think she has grown into the job and I think she's grown into the job very well. I think expectations were low when she became commission president and that's a good thing for anybody in any position because they can only go one way if you like and that's upward. And I think expectations were low because even though she had been in government in Germany for quite some time, uh, she wasn't particularly prominent and she wasn't known in Brussels and even though I think she grew up here, she she didn't really know Brussels. And also the way in which she was chosen. She was an accidental commission president. Almost all commission presidents are accidental commission presidents because they emerge out of a a negotiation. But she was not a Spitzenkandidat. And that is one of the reasons why the expectations were low, because the presumption was that as a result, she would have weak legitimacy. But where she has gained in strength, I think, and where she has proved so effective is that her legitimacy derives from what she has delivered. And what she has delivered is a very effective COVID response after an initial stumble, no doubt about that, and a very effective response to the war in Ukraine. Mm. So I think that she has grown in stature, but I think no matter how effective she is or may be seen to be, if you put this in the longer term perspective of the development of the European Union and of inter-institution relations, there's a limit to how effective she can be. The other big institution here, of course, is the council, which represents the 27 member states. And a lot of people would say, would contend that that's really where power lies here, that the council comes in and has the final sign off on so many issues. And whether it was the Greek bailout crisis of, a f- of years ago, whether it's COVID pandemic now in Ukraine, now big issues like enlargement, ultimately it is the EU member states through the European Council who make those big decisions. How would you assess the Commission's relationship with the Council and that kind of balance of power between the von der Leyen Commission and the Council? Well, you're perfectly right about the role of the European Council. It's something I study quite closely and it is politically the most important decision-making body in the European Union. It doesn't have legislative authority, we know that, but it can reach political decisions which are then translated into legislation or at least the the European Council can then encourage the Council of Ministers on its side within the legislative process to push whatever agreement the European Council reached. But the European Council is more than just the 27 member states. It's the 27 member states plus the Commission President. Now, I know the Commission President is not a principal member in that the Commission President cannot vote. The European Council very rarely votes and it has the authority only to vote on questions such as on key appointments. And the Commission President and indeed the European Council's own president don't have the right to vote. So they're not principal members, but in every other respect, they are full members. And I think one of the reasons, going back to your earlier question about von der Leyen's success is that she has been very effective in 
the European Council. Other Commission presidents have in the past, in fact, going back to Delors, Delors was very effective, not only because the wind was behind the sails in the sense that there was a big agenda, legislative agenda, very widely supported by business and public opinion, I mean the single market programme, and that's really what he pushed and that helped to raise his profile. But he was very effective at operating within the European Council and he was seen almost as being on a par with the leaders of France and Germany at that time. In von der Leyen's case, she has excelled also in using the European Council as a forum in which to promote her particular agenda. And she's been helped by the fact that national leadership is weak in the European Council at the moment. Macron has become preoccupied with other things, uh, domestically, I mean, pension reform. He's now trying to reassert himself internationally, largely by trying to mend bridges with countries in Central and Eastern Europe. Chancellor Schulz has not been as effective so far as perhaps we would have expected a German chancellor to be. And in fact, I would say, as far as national leadership in the European Council is concerned, it's the leaders of some of the small member states which, who are proving more effective at the moment, partly because there is a political, there is a leadership vacuum, but also those countries from Central and Eastern Europe. I'm excluding Poland because Poland is exceptional. Poland is taking a leading role, we all know, in contributing to the, Euro- the EU's and the Western's and, and NATO support for Ukraine. But the current Polish government is so Eurosceptical and its view of European integration is so antithetical to that of, if you like, the traditional view that no matter how important Poland is strategically at the moment, it's not, under the current government, it's not going to be able to translate that into political influence. But take a country like Estonia, very small member state, but a country that has for a long time been talking about the dangers of Putin and the risks of political instability and its voice was never heard, both because it was a small member state and because it was saying something that the other member states, many of them didn't want to hear. But now the leader of a country that is being listened to in the in the European Council. One of the things, again, we've written about here is that, Vondra, you, you touched on this when you're talking about her, her strengths uh, within the council, even though they're not formally a member. But as you say, I remember covering summits here myself and being surprised. I didn't realise at the beginning that the commission president attends and she's there giving the press conference at the end. So, you know, she's very much involved in those European councils. But the fact that I think this was a real measure of her success and her power was that when the Ukraine war started, it was von der Leyen and the commission that the White House called. It was von der Leyen who became, who stepped up to the plate in terms of who is a leader of Europe, the famous Henry Kissinger quip it's attributed to the former US Secretary of State, who do you call when you call Europe? And maybe there was a sense that these big leaders, as you say, not, not Michel, but but Macron, uh, Schultz, were asleep at the wheel, that you know nobody was listening. And von der Leyen was, had, had yeah. meetings with Biden. And then again, this was the strength of the commission. They started looking at sanctions together, Washington and Brussels. And this is what the commission is good at, things like sanctions, things like technical, trade measures and she was in her element here and they managed to quietly get this alignment between uh, Washington and Brussels that uh, she was uh, personally instrumental in. I think you're right and the commission is well known in Washington. Many people say oh the United States doesn't really understand the European Union. Those in Washington for whom the European Union is important understand the European Union and understand it well and the commission has had a permanent president presence in, in Washington for years now, a large delegation. U.S. officials have been dealing with the commission, as you said, on trade policy, on competition policy, you know, trying to influence the commission. They're familiar with the commission. They know the commission. And I think it was therefore second nature for them in the United States, I mean, to contact the commission. 
and um, von der Leyen certainly appreciated that. Mm, yeah, interesting. So looking to the future now, I'm not going to ask you the question that people ask me all the time, will von der Leyen be the next head of the commission? <laughs> because who knows? And we'll see how that kind of musical chairs works out uh, next summer when those big jobs are being divvied out after the European Parliament elections in June 2024. But I mean, broad picture here, you've been writing about and studying the European Union for years now. Um, what do you think is next for the EU? What's the big challenge coming uh, down the line over the next, say, 10 years or so? Well, there are some immediate challenges, obviously, the situation in Ukraine and more broadly speaking, the security situation in Europe after the war in Ukraine, because that's that's going to be very difficult. Specifically for the European Union, I think enlargement is a huge challenge. Enlargement has always been a challenge and the European Union has met that challenge. But I think that if you look at the profile of the countries that are now seeking membership and the complexity of the situations that they face, you can group a number of them, of course, in the Western Balkans, where the situation perhaps is getting worse and not better. And that's not exactly encouraging as far as EU enlargement is concerned. And Ukraine itself, uh, everybody is sympathetic toward Ukraine and wants to send positive signals to Ukraine, but Ukraine is in absolutely no position to join the European Union in the foreseeable future. It already got a pass uh, on becoming a candidate member. But g- given its uh, hugely st- stressed and stretched administrative resources and bureaucratic capacity for obvious reasons, it just doesn't have the bandwidth to focus on the requirements of European Union membership. And I, I think that the, the European Union may have been a bit too slow and hesitant at times when it came to the enlargement process. But I think now it has to be very careful about, uh, on the one hand, certainly sending positive signals. That's, that's important. But being realistic as well about the prospects of Ukraine, Moldova, Georgia joining. And then the implications of their membership in the institutional implications, the political, the policy implications, the budgetary implications, these are huge. And I think that there's a tendency because of the current situation to say, oh, you know, it's, it's all going to be fine, but it may not be. So I would say enlargement, the security situation is, is a huge concern. Enlargement is a huge concern. There are other challenges that are not specific to the EU. I'm talking about the climate crisis, for instance, a huge looming problem potentially is the re-election of Donald Trump in the United States. That's everybody's nightmare. Many people in the United States have this nightmare, by the way. <laughs> but certainly outside of the United States and, and in Europe, I think I think people do. It's a possibility. Yeah. But the consequences of that for transatlantic relations could be very, very serious. Yeah, no doubt a topic we will return to in the coming year. Next year, a big year for elections, both here in Brussels with the European Parliament elections in June and then the US presidential election in November 2024. Professor Dynan, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. My pleasure. And that's all the time we have on this episode of EU Confidential. Be sure to follow or subscribe to the podcast so that you never miss an episode. And remember, you can always send us feedback or ideas by emailing us. The address is podcast at politico.eu. Thanks this week to our executive producer for audio, Christina Gonzalez, as well as Julia Poloni and Gillian Coptic for their production assistance on this episode. I'm Suzanne Lynch in Brussels. See you next week. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. 
Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.